It's my first Christmas in Toronto. I've lived here for over a decade now, but I always went home for the holidays. But the city has become my home, so I'm wandering through the Eaton Centre. That proto-Main Street that makes more sense at this time of year than any other. The promise of an indoor neighbourhood fulfilled by the bustling energy people bring to it. Under the new skywalk across Queen Street, a brass band competes with the sounds piping out of the bay's annual window display. Moods are high. On a city level, there's plenty to be thankful for. A new subway extension, bike lanes on Bloor, Berksy Park. But there's still a lot to strive for. Further down Queen Street in Moss Park, the Follower's Mission is offering a hot meal and a service for the many people struggling in that area. It's crowded, but everyone forms an orderly queue. On the other side of the park is the new emergency clinic, desperately trying to curb the devastation fentanyl has brought to this community. And beside that stands the Moss Park Armory, waiting to take people in from the cold if the city only asks. The holidays are a time to count our blessings, but they happen during a time of year when want is keenly felt and the frozen streets can turn deadly. We can celebrate everything that's been accomplished this year, so long as we remember not everyone has an equal share in this progress. This is Spacing Radio. back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, Toronto is getting a brand new skating trail in the new year. We speak to the East Scarborough storefronts and Gloger, one of the two Jane Jacobs Prize recipients for 2017, and we talk to our senior editor Dylan Reed about the Spacing book series. But first, this year has been one of the deadliest recorded for the homeless in Toronto. And with the temperature dropping and shelters at capacity, anti-poverty advocates are clamoring for more to be done before more people die. Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam has been relaying the message to her colleagues, and we sat down with her at City Hall following a crucial vote at Council. Stand by. So, Councillor, uh, recently in City Hall, uh, Council approved uh, 400 new beds to the tune of uh, $10 million for uh, shelters in the city. Uh, but not everyone is happy. And I was wondering if you could uh, help break down what, what's that issue here. Um, what the proposal was from Councillor Mahevic was not necessarily 400 new beds, but rather 400 new spaces. So they were not permanent beds. They were uh, mats on the floors or perhaps um, uh, chairs reclining chairs in drop-in facilities. And what the local frontline community has been asking for after years of service and observation was that the system was already overcrowded. Uh, The proposal from the councillor was to put in 
more spaces and mats into uh, existing shelter facilities, which would mean emptying out offices where administrative staff would be working and putting in more beds. It would mean uh, introducing more respite or uh, warming centers, and they would uh, then be those spaces, uh, as well as uh, booking more hotel rooms, uh, which have already been identified by frontline workers as being woefully inadequate because they're isolated. They're in communities that don't have wraparound services and supports. Uh, and uh, and overall, the plan was not sustainable. It was putting a Band-Aid on a, a very, uh, you know, ruptured wound. Um, so that's really what the, the, what the, what the community was upset about. And, uh, and these are people with frontline uh, service, uh, years of working uh, with vulnerable street populations, and also people with lived experience who said, you know, the current condition is not working. Please don't replicate uh, what is already broken. And in terms of the overcrowding, uh, I imagine that can be a deterrent uh, for some people uh, who otherwise might make use of the space, uh, as well as uh, there are probably safety concerns when things get too crowded. Yes, and that's what we're hearing from frontline shelter workers, with from administrators, from executive directors, the people who are directly involved with those street-involved populations, uh, is that the cr- overcrowding in the shelters is actually creating very unsafe conditions. You have people who are living vicariously, who are uh, living with mental health. They have uh, different types of episodes, uh, and that overcrowding just uh, uh, basically escalates all of that type of behavior and activity, uh, not to mention that we have had uh, outbreaks of infectious uh, diseases, uh, largely because of the unsanitary conditions. Uh, it's very important for, um, for people to recognize that these warming centers and respite centers are not shelters, which means that they don't have adequate washrooms, they don't have shower facilities at all, they don't have beds, and l- people are literally sleeping on the floor, they're sleeping underneath uh, tables, they're sleeping in every nook and cranny they can, uh, and that's creating uh, some very difficult conditions, not just for the workers, but especially for the street-involved population. As well, what I'm reading is the uh, the out-of-the-cold program is kind of... Uh that they're handling as much as they possibly can, and it's it's great that they do that work, but uh, that that doesn't seem to be like a, a long-term strategy either, more of a stopgap. No, and uh, the out-of-the-code program is a voluntary uh, program that uh, was put together by the faith community as a temporary response to the crisis that we had been seeing in the city for years, uh, and it was supposed to provide some relief to the already overcrowded uh, shelter programs. And uh, and what we've heard now from the faith leaders, from the communities that have been providing, providing that service for free uh, to the city uh, and to the population uh, is that they're overburdened. So for, for two years back to back, they've come to City Hall telling us that they're in, in a, an unmanageable and untenable situation, uh, that they need to have uh, relief. Uh, they're at the breaking point. I've heard them speak to um, you know, uh, to, to people that they don't want to turn away. But, you know, when you have a facility in a synagogue or a church receiving over 300 people a night and you don't have those spaces, it's heartbreaking. And that's what we're hearing from them. And so you had an alternate proposal that did not succeed at council, but uh, it, it included uh, the opening of the armories to use as a space. 
Yeah, so my proposal was actually um, the same set of recommendations that was adopted uh, at, a, at a prior standing committee, the Community Development Recreation Committee. And the proposal was to, number one, open the federal armories, ask for permission from the federal government. Uh, and they had indicated that their willingness to, to listen to the city and to entertain a proposal. Uh, so the door was open, and they, they explicitly said that. Uh, and then secondly is to make sure that we introduce 1,000 new permanent beds into the shelter system by the end of 2018. So the proposal was really uh, two-folds, and that's what made it so significant. Um, we were not going to uh, wait months while they negotiated um, uh, hotel contracts. We were not going to uh, ask uh, the community to wait months uh, while they try to find new uh, facilities for respite centers uh, or even try to uh, figure out where they can cram more uh, shelter uh, spaces into overcrowded conditions. So that's why the community of shelter support workers and the out-of-the-code uh, program service providers were so uh, enthusiastic about my motion. Um, and that motion is the same motion that was adopted by the committee that was then overturned by council. As well, uh, it seems like the federal government is, is willing to, to play. Uh, you know, Adam Vaughn recently tweeted that, you know, just let us know. And uh, um, I guess the argument that I've seen against opening the armories is that staff say it's not an ideal situation uh, to meet their guidelines, which the existing shelters are already not meeting the guidelines that the city sets. Um, but it seems like a strange argument when the alternative is sleeping in the cold and, and possibly you know, exposing yourself to danger. Yes, and that's that's what is such a, what what is a heartbreaking irony to to this is that uh, the staff are saying that it's on the list of options. The armories is certainly on the list of options. It's not an ideal or optimal condition, but at the same time, as you rightly noted, is that they're saying you know the current condition, as we all know, is overcrowded. The system is overburdened, uh, but we're not going to think dramatically outside the box. Um, so you know, MP Adam Vaughn was uh, was very. Uh, much uh, helpful in the conversation during the actual debate of the uh, of the of the item, uh, and he uh, basically released that statement from the Minister of National Defense, saying, you know, the federal government stands ready to cooperate and help uh, with all local authorities should they request it. Uh, they are not going to be interfering with local uh, jurisdiction, uh, and but what they wanted to do is let us know very clearly. Um, that that they're they're prepared to have that conversation, and should the city of Toronto make a formal request and submit a plan for a proposal, then they would sit down and talk to us. And in my conversations with Adam Vaughn subsequently afterwards, uh, he essentially reiterated that. But he said it was very important that number one, the city ask, because uh, the federal government is not going to be interfering with any city's business unless they're invited to the table. It has been a, a brutal year for homeless deaths uh, in the city. Uh, we're looking at already over 70. Um, that, that could be partially that we're, we're taking better count now, but still, it, are things getting worse? It seems like the pressures on, on certain people of uh, an income bracket uh, uh, are getting more extreme. Uh, it is getting worse. The situation out there is, uh, I can describe it as dire. And I think that it's important that it's not just frontline workers uh, who are working with street populations that are asking for solutions. It's actually residents uh, in communities that could be affluent or middle class. It's uh, small business uh, shop owners who are looking at people on the street, uh, you know, sleeping in their doorway. Uh, residents and business owners are asking the city to, to lead. And, uh, and I think that, you know, if we can f- provide 
some temporary uh, relief, but as soon as possible, it is the difference between saving lives or or basically sensing them than to death uh, by leaving them on the street. Um, so this is not a, a situation that does not rec- that does not have support from the communities and from residents. Over 25,000 people have signed a petition saying uh, they want the armories open. Uh, people recognize that you know if you're going to be able to provide some safe haven uh, for people who are currently on the street and given the volume of people who are living uh, rough right now on the streets, uh, we're going to have to do something big and dramatic. And that includes opening up large spaces, uh, cavernous spaces that accommodate uh, several hundred people at a time, such as the armories uh, or any other type of large facility, um, we just have to do it. We can't. We can't be negotiating, you know, a dozen or two hundred beds, or a dozen or a couple dozen beds uh, at a time. It just takes too long. And so, you know, the the vote has come and gone, but uh, I don't think groups like uh, like the Ontario Council Against uh, Poverty. Uh, uh, frontline staff that you mentioned, people like Kathy Crow, I don't think they're willing to uh, just give up the fight. So what what happens next and how can people help if they want to add their voice to uh, the pressure to get something done? Um, I don't think, I think you're right. This, this issue is not over. And I think because it's been uh, an issue that's been largely ignored and not dealt with properly by city council for a number of years now, uh, the anger is uh, is growing. And uh, and I'm hearing not just from the uh, from OCAP or from you know from from who are what we would see the normal people who'd be coming out uh, over and over again advocating for these things. Uh, I'm hearing from rabbis. I'm hearing from synagogues. I'm hearing from churches, uh, and I'm actually hearing from local communities as more and more of this despair is living in, in their neighborhood. Uh, they want the city to act. Um, people can sign the petition. Uh, Change.org is where the petition is in terms of asking for the armories to open. Uh, people. This should be calling uh, Mayor John Tory directly. I would call and email him. Let them know that they don't belong to any of these, uh, uh, you know, organizations. But they, as a private indis- uh, individual, citizen of the city, want him to to lead and take some action. And I think that they need to be very specific and say, you know, you need to do something immediately. Uh, booking uh, hotel rooms is not adequate, uh, and especially since we know that those conditions are not good. They've already people who work in uh, with refugees and populations already staying in hotel rooms are telling us that is inadequate. Um, and uh, they need to also let him know like that he should be listening to frontline workers and people with lived experience. Uh, he cannot be pitting the communities against one another. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what I think should be the immediate uh, response. Uh, in the long term, and, and when I say long term, I don't even think it's you know, months out. I think it's a matter of um, in, in, in a short period of time, I, what I believe is going to happen is that these communities that are under so much pressure, uh, they're going to break and that anger is going to spill. And it's going to spill into the council chambers and, uh, and I think they're, they're going to take some action. I don't know what that action looks like, but I know that people act and respond in, uh, in ways uh, when, they are, uh, when they are desperate. And right now that community that works with street-involved people are desperate. They are fighting for people's lives. Well, Councillor, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you very much for having me. Work has been underway all year to provide a new linear park space beneath the Gardner Expressway. And this park will feature an ice skating trail that's set to open on January 6th. Jake Tobin Garrett, Manager of Policy and Planning at Toronto Park People and a spacing contributor, tells us what we can expect. 
So Jake, we're talking about the Bentway. Uh, for some of our listeners, they, they may not know what the Bentway is. So can you kind of explain that this new park that we're going to be seeing opening and uh, how it kind of came to be? Sure. Um, so the Bentway is um, a pretty um, interesting new public space that's going to be coming to the city of Toronto. It's a linear public space from Strawn um, to um, Spadina. Um, and uh, uh, it's going to be opening up partially, I think, uh, this winter with a skating trail and then opening up fully uh, in the summer. Uh, and it's underneath the Gardner Expressway. So that's what really makes this linear, linear public space uh, pretty un- unique. It kind of reuses a space that, um, you know, maybe wasn't used as much previously um, for a new public space, which is pretty cool. Uh, and the way it came about actually was um, partially through a uh, donation, a private donation uh, to the city from the Matthews Foundation of uh, $25 million, kind of really kickstarted uh, this project and, and put it on the map in a, in a new way. Mm-hmm. And so in the new year, uh, soon after the new year, the people will be able to make use of this uh, skating trail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think if you go, you know, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of people, I think, kind of peeking into uh, the construction site of the Bentway now and seeing uh, the skating trail being poured. And there's certainly been, um, you know, putting out a lot of tweets and things to get people excited about it. So um, I think they're probably going to have a nice opening and a good first winter season there. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is not the the first skating trail that Toronto has, but uh, it seems to be that uh, skating trails are, are, are becoming more and more popular uh, uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, so winter, you know, skating, obviously huge in Toronto. I'm from Vancouver, so um, not necessarily, you know, um, the biggest kind of winter activity in Vancouver, but definitely you come to Toronto and it's something that happens in a lot of parks, whether that's uh, artificial rinks that are outdoors or um, a lot of park friends groups and other community groups actually create natural ice rinks. They flood uh, part of their park with permission, of course, from the city to create these ice rinks. Um, but uh yeah, I think the skating trails are kind of a new, um, uh, interesting twist on uh, the skating rink. You know, it's kind of maybe more fun to uh, skate in a trail or a kind of figure eight than it is in a circle. And so um, the Bentway, I think, will be the longest one that we have in the city of Toronto. Uh, and I believe there's another one opening up uh, this weekend at uh, Riverdale Park East. Okay. Um, so we're seeing more of them uh, happen in the city for sure. And is this... Uh is this a sort of an effort to have like year year round programming or like it's a great idea and I think people will avail themselves of it. But, um, you know, why why skating trails? Why now? I do think it is, uh, you know, trying to encourage people to come out and use parks in the wintertime. Um, and I think, you know, in particular with, you know, thinking about the Bentway, um, it's a really interesting feature to put underneath the Gardner Expressway, right? To go skating on a trail underneath this uh, elevated urban highway is a pretty interesting experience to have. And I think one that will bring people to that site in the winter in a way that, you know, if there was no skating trail there, you probably wouldn't see as much use um, in that public space. So uh, it was a way to kind of draw people to that part when it's uh, a little bit colder outside right because some parks in the city uh you know through no necessarily fault of their own uh, in the winter they're just kind of dead dead space there's not a lot to activate them Uh, so uh, is it because maybe you know these are new parks uh you know we we have we have plenty of other parks to compare so as we are creating new parks in the city we're we're kind of keeping an eye on how to keep it energized uh, 365 days a year yeah definitely seeing more attention being paid to winter use of parks i think recently um even you know when you're thinking about um 
even just something simple as like the renderings or the design drawings that you're seeing about new park spaces or the designs of parks, you know, most of the time, uh, you know, you would see them just in kind of the spring and the summer months, like people having picnics or playing sports and things like that. And I think now a lot more you're seeing attention being paid to what's that space actually going to look like in the winter? What's the activities that could happen in the winter? Um, so you're seeing that on like kind of a design level. And then from a community level, I think we're seeing a lot of interest in people um, trying to activate their parks in the wintertime as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so through winter festivals and um, you know ice skating uh, days and, and making these natural ice rinks. Um, so encouraging people to come to their local parks in the winter as well. Mm-hmm. As well, uh, we're seeing in Toronto and, uh, and all over the world, cities all over the world, uh, this concept of linear parks. I mean, mm-hmm. we're we're going to see the Bentway open. We're talking about the Green Line right. uh, north of Bloor um, and the Hydro Corridor. Is this um is this getting creative with space because space is at a premium? Yeah, it's definitely getting creative with space. So these linear parks are often following or on top of or underneath infrastructure corridors that already exist. So mm-hmm. that might be a hydro corridor, it might be a railway, it might be a roadway. So this is space that already exists in a city that you can kind of repurpose for uh, park or public space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other really amazing and cool thing about linear parks um, is that they actually, you know, they're creating you know, public space and green space often for people to use, but they're also creating these kind of active transportation pieces as well. So they're connecting neighborhoods in new ways, often over barriers that may have disconnected those neighborhoods previously. Um, So they're, you know, these really great ways of um, kind of inserting public space, but also creating space for people to, you know, walk and bike and be active. And so uh, January 6th, are you going to be there with your skates on? I think I will. Yeah, I'm not a huge skater, but uh, this is too exciting to, to not to not show up for the first day. Anne Gloger is the most recent recipient of the Jane Jacobs Prize, an annual award of which Spacing Magazine is the steward, celebrating individuals who contribute to the fabric of life in Toronto. We ask Anne, as well as Zara Ibrahim, designer and lead at Dobler who introduced Gloger at the prize announcement this December, about her work at the East Scarborough Storefront Community Hub. So first of all, Anne, congratulations on uh, receiving the Jane Jacobs Prize. Thank you. Uh, I'd like you, uh, just for our listeners, to first start out by telling us about the uh, East Scarborough Storefront, what what it does and sort of how it came to, to be. Right. Well, the East Scarborough Storefront is what we call a community backbone organization. And what that means is that we help organizations, individuals, institutions um, work better together in order to um, affect positive social change in the community of East Scarborough. It started out 17 years ago as a service delivery hub in response to the severe lack of services in the community um, at a time when more and more refugees were being housed in the Kingston Road Motel Strip. So um, community members and organizations came together and uh, sort of asked themselves, how can we work better together given that there isn't a lot of money for a whole bunch of infrastructure in East Scarborough? And the uh, 40 organization service delivery hub um, came into reality in 2001. People in East Scarborough then could get a full range of services and each organization dedicated 10 hours a week to bringing their particular program or service to those people. Mm-hmm. And 40 organizations, uh, that, that's an incredible feat to, to bring all those people together. I mean, it, it could seem like a logistical nightmare, uh, but uh, it, it seems to have come together uh, very organically. Yes, so the, uh, the 40 organizations actually worked together um, prior to my starting. Um, and they put out a call for, uh, 
they had a five thousand dollar contract to, for somebody to come and help turn their dreams into reality, and that's how I got involved. I responded to that call. Um, forty organizations, um, uh, thirty-five to forty every year, going strong. Seventeen years for the service hub, but then add to that the twenty organizations we work with in the direct community, the multiple organizations that we work with um, outside of the community, but link to other other areas of the city the hundreds of resident leaders that we work with um, on a day-to-day basis and it is it is logistically challenging and it is so uh, inspiring and so my my sense of the storefront is that uh, it's sort of a one-stop shop with uh, all all kinds of different services Uh, how important is it to to have all these services under one roof well, I think that that's, that's the thing that we're, that we're best known for is the service delivery hub. And it's hugely important to people to have the services that they need. But it is not the only thing that a community needs in order for a community to thrive. In fact, services are critical so that people can mitigate the effects of things like poverty. Um, however, they are actually not uh, working towards changing the situation. So. Uh, while the service delivery hub, incredibly important, incredibly well used, about 200 people a day, um, the, uh, the work has expanded to such an extent that we're doing um, economic development, uh, we're doing um, environmental work, so we're really working on place-based systems change alongside of providing programs and services. And this seems like a sort of a bottom-up model as opposed to like something coming from uh, even just a well-meaning government uh, model, that kind of thing. Uh, you, you start uh, you start at the ground with community consultations. Uh, I can't remember what you, you called them. Um, community Speaks. Community Speaks, yeah. Can you tell me about that? Uh, yeah, so um, the, the tagline that we use is um, from, the, from the bottom up and the inside out. Uh, so the a community speak might look from the outside to be like a focus group or a forum or a consultation, but really what it is is a regular invitation to dinner of between about 60 and 100 residents, different residents, um, it's a fluid kind of process, to really grapple with what's going on in the community, to think about what we've been collectively building together. How do we build on that in order to better do what we're doing to affect change in the community? So it's not the community members providing the professionals information. It is everybody together trying to figure stuff out. Right. So it seems like you're seizing the assets that exist in the community and kind of bringing them together. Kind of said it better myself. And uh, so uh, for you personally, um, you know, beyond your education, your work history, what what brings you to this? What what drives you? I think what drives me is very much a belief in people and a belief in the fact that um, what we do is all made up of a whole bunch of systems. And if those systems work well together... And if people work well together and if we build on strengths and build on synergies, change happens. And uh, for the most part, in the way we've designed systems, they don't work that well together. And what drives me is seeing people come together, working well together and uh, innovating together and uh, from across different um, life paths and across different sectors. And that's what drives me. I get really charged by that stuff. And what are some benchmarks that uh, that you've reached at the storefront uh, since you, since your your time in, in 2001? I mean, it's it's been a long time. Uh, what what are some things that really uh, inspired you and got you excited? 
well, the whole founding story with the with the service hub and the no money and you know everybody pitching in and making it work that always inspires me. Um, certainly, uh, Zara will talk to you about community design initiative. It continues to be a defining moment in storefront, and that's where architects and designers and planners uh, mentored local youth for five years to repurpose an old police station and turn it from um, a spot in the community that was looked out with suspicion to a thriving community uh, resource center. Um, the creation of the Skyo Swale, which is this beautiful uh, shade structure with a green roof that actually filters water to provide um, irrigation for the community garden, which it was invented by youth. You know, that is clearly a defining moment. I think, too, when we were able to, in 2010, really strongly support residents to lead their own initiatives. In the social sector, what, you, what often happens is residents want to get involved and they become volunteers of the organization. So they're working um, on the organization's agenda. They work for the organization. But what we've really been able to cultivate in the last seven or so years is the idea of resident leadership. They're working entirely on their own agendas. And what we are is a support to them. Right. And so if I'm walking into the storefront, uh, what kind of services can I access? Uh, services, uh, full range of services from employment, poverty is a huge issue, obviously, uh, mental health supports, uh, youth groups, uh, legal support, settlement support. Uh, the idea is that somebody walks in and says, this is my issue, and we ask, uh, let's figure out who can help you. And so hopefully that they're um, available through the 35 organizations that are at the storefront um, or somewhere else in the community or somewhere else in Scarborough. And we make uh, personal introductions to make sure that people get the services that they need. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to uh, uh, Zara because it can sometimes be hard to talk about yourself. Uh, Zara, can you tell me about Anne? Well, um, it depends what you want to know. I think when I think about Anne, I think about... A person that can inspire and engage in any space. And so my work has sort of crossed community development and the public sector and the private sector and the philanthropic sector. And every time I'm in a new space, I find myself referring to the principles through which Anne has developed and supported the community at the storefront and around the storefront to thrive. Um, and so when I think of Anne, I think of this you know, sector agnostic thinker who is committed to being curious about everyone and everything, and everyone certainly has value. And it sounds really simple, but it's actually really hard to practice uh, that equitable curiosity in any, anyone's lived experience. Um, and so, you know, how that, how that shows up in the way that the community and the storefront has evolved has been that when you go around the city and you talk about the storefront, if you say the storefront at any table, at any table where people are trying to make systems change happen in the city, you will find at least one person go, oh yes, and then they will tell their own story, which looks remarkably different than yours. Um, I think that's a really incredible quality for an organization that is on the edge of an inner suburb that is not in the core of the city that is really committed to serving community but yet is influencing these significant people and systems all over our region and our country and so when I think about Anne I think that is a formidable quality in a leader to be enabling such 
incredibly powerful dialogue without being in the room and without being um, in all these places where she's having an impact. And so I, I don't know how, or maybe I ha I'm getting a sense of how, how she does it. And I think a large part is enabling others. Um, and I certainly feel like I've been, I'm someone who's been enabled by, by Anne. And what's it like to see Anne in action? You know, it's it's discreet. Like that's the thing. That's the beauty of seeing Anne in action. Is Anne creates the space. She doesn't take the space, and so seeing her in action is kind of quiet. Actually, is uh, she makes sure that a space is set up in a way that is um, inclusive without being uh, so so obvious in trying to design that is um, safe and is open and creates the space. You know, it's interesting, as I was thinking about my introduction for Anne today, I was thinking a lot about uh, what I hear about innovation, specifically in the public sector. I mean, in all sectors right now. And everyone talks about creating space for innovation. And I think when you see Anne in action, you realize you don't need to use those words. You just need to give people the tacit permission to speak their truth. And ultimately something interesting will emerge. And so I think Anne in action is creating that space. Um, but it's gentle. I don't think it's, it's uh, so obvious all the time, all of the small conditions that she enables in order for that safe space to endure, not just in a moment, but, but beyond her presence there in a meeting. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, you know, what's on the horizon for, for Storefront? Uh, I imagine the, the success of this sort of model, uh, uh, people are probably looking to it uh, to duplicate in, in other neighborhoods that, that might need the same sort of model. Uh, are people talking to you about that or are they like, come help us? <laughs> yes, so um, the Storefront is what I describe as fiercely place-based. So the Storefront is by the community, for the community, and will continue to go more deeply into the community in the years to come. Um, particularly, I think about aligning some of the bigger systems um, around um, employment and around um, uh, access to power. And that's really, really super exciting. In terms of answering your other question, um, we have no desire to replicate the storefront. What we do have a desire to do is to help others to think about connected communities and how to make their own community a connected community and benefit from those connections in the same way that the storefront has. And to that end, we, are, we have created the Center for Connected Communities, also known as C3, um, which uh, is aligning uh, the work of neighborhood leaders uh, across the city in the form of local champions. It's a, um, an initiative in partnership with the City of Toronto. Um, we are taking over um, the Shape My City uh, website, which again is going to be able to um, take some of the really great things from Shape My City and make them relevant to the inner suburbs. Um, and we teach and we write and we help people to think about the spaces between the great things that are happening in communities, not just the individual programs and the individual interventions, but the how do does one thing strengthen another in your community? And you might end up with something that looks like the storefront, but chances are you'll look out you'll end up with something that looks uniquely yours for your neighborhood. Well Anne, thank you so much for your contribution and congratulations. Thank you very much. And we'll be speaking to the other 2017 Jane Jacobs Prize recipient next month.
Now we're going to check in with Spacing's Dylan Reed about our book series. What do you get for the diehard Torontonian in your life? Well, we've got you covered. Yeah, so um, we're three books into the series now. Um, we're looking at having at least five in total. Um, so the first book is The 50 um, Objects That Define Toronto. And uh, they put that out um, a while ago. And uh, it's really inspired by um, some of the books that people put out about, you know, 50 objects or 100 objects that, you know, define human history and stuff like that but we wanted to do one specifically about toronto and we have uh we have a great selection of of things um and then the second one was the toronto public etiquette guide and uh, i think it's been really great to kind of bring something out to get people talking about you know how do we behave in public and what do we need to do to kind of get along in spaces that we all share and that one you kind of you kind of did yourself out of whole cloth yeah, we got our readers to uh, give us um, feedback. So we asked our readers, you know, what do they think? And um, so we feature uh, we feature quotes from our readers throughout the book. And then we also have four great, like, short sections from uh, Toronto histor- historical writers um, about the history of Toronto Good, the history of when we used to close parks on Sundays, um, historical public etiquette. And the, the best, the most hilarious one maybe is the, um, the fact that Toronto actually tried to pass a bylaw that defined where you're supposed to walk on the sidewalk <laughs> back in the 1940s. And we immediately got a lot of, uh, a lot of um, criticism and mockery from around Canada. The latest one that we just came out with is um, 25 Days That Changed Toronto. And we've got everything from like the first game in Maple Leaf Gardens to um, the uh, first woman who was elected to Toronto City Council, uh, the, uh, the first mayor of Toronto. So a whole bunch of uh, significant days in Toronto's history. And so there's a, there's a new one in the works. Yep. So the next one we're working on is 25 Toronto Transit Secrets. And uh, I think that's going to be a great one. People in Toronto are just obsessed by transit in a lot of ways. And this really brings out all kind of the crazy history of Toronto's transit and some really fun, interesting things people might not know about uh, Toronto transit past and present. Yeah, I mean, it's a deep rabbit hole if you care to go down. Uh... It is, it is. And it's been fun kind of going down that rabbit hole with our writers and seeing what they come up with. I, I learned a lot myself. And are we planning to continue this series? Yeah, we have uh, two more uh, in the works. Um, actually, sorry, one more in the works uh, after the transit one. And then we have some other ideas, too, that we're hoping to uh, put together in the future. And you can purchase all three of the uh, published books, uh, The 50 Objects, The Etiquette Guide, and The 25 Days That Changed Toronto at the Spacing Store. Dylan, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your mall Santa, your ice skating enthusiast, and your local community hub. A like, share, or rating on iTunes is all I could ask for this holiday season. I make this show with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, hit us up on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. And look for our latest sports-themed issue of the magazine that should be on newsstands in the coming weeks. In the meantime, best wishes to you and yours, and we'll see you in the new year. 
Cheers.